Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Father, once again, one more time, thank you for your word that is a light into our feet and a light into our path. Lord, touch us this morning. Grant us wisdom and open up our understanding. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There is in the church a lot of different kinds of ministries among us. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul lists five different kinds of offices and ministry. He says there are apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers. We often refer to this as the fivefold ministry. And it's certainly not limited to that because in other areas Paul will uh, talk about other types of ministries, but this is a core of, of the ministry of the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers. The evangelist in that list literally is just means a preacher of the gospel, someone who proclaims the good news of Jesus. And so we are all called in a sense to be an evangelist, to proclaim the gospel. But like all other words, that word evangelist has cultural shadings and connotations. And so when we talk about an evangelist in our church culture today, we typically think of a preacher who travels around holding revivals, a series of meetings. He is this itinerant traveling preacher uh, who may not necessarily be pastoring a church, but he's the guy that goes from town to town or for camp meeting to camp meeting. Uh, the Billy Grahams of the world was one of the uh, first in, in our modern times. Uh, the Billy Sundays of a of hundred years ago. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing the evangelist in the modern sense. Uh, my life has been impacted by traveling preachers. And there are some men and women who are called to fill that role. And just because it's not my calling doesn't mean that it's not somebody else's, that I'm minimizing that. I think of uh, a lady named Bernadine Caldwell, who has since uh, passed on. But in 1963, she preached a six-week revival in our hometown where 70-something people received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 48 people were baptized, and it formed the core of that church that's still there today. There are still people there today who came into church as young people who are now in their later years, but they're there because of a six-week revival held by a traveling preacher who held revivals. I heard her once say she held revivals in 27 states. That's what her calling was. 
evangelists can breathe life into a church through the Word of God. But there are limitations in what can be done in one service or in one week or even six weeks. It, it's something different to build long-term, long-lasting success in a church. We must champion the preaching of the Word of God and the move of the Spirit of God and the effects that it has long-term in the life of a person. I don't have, and I learned this from someone who taught this to me, is that I don't have great expectations for any one particular sermon or church service. I don't expect any one particular sermon to just be absolutely transforming in a person's life. It can happen, it does happen, happen, but on balance, it is the long-lasting, consistent effect. Uh, I did not get to be my six foot, 200 and none of your business pounds by one meal. Uh, it, it didn't, I didn't eat one meal and, and this all just happened. It was a lifetime of just a something here, a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, a breakfast, a lunch, a dinner, lots of snacks in between. Not one of those meals made a difference, but a lifetime of nutrition made who we are. And we have to understand that that's how the Word of God works. It's here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. That's how kingdom growth happens. And if we're called to pulpit ministry, we are called to preach the Word in one way or another. We exalt over the Word. We expose the glorious truths in the Bible. It's one of the things that I, one of the goals that I had early on in what we're doing here is to say we want to set a baseline of we are going to bring biblical exposition every time that we come together because the, the power is not in my persuasion. Uh, that's not what preaching is. The power isn't in my intellect or my ability. The power lies inside of the Word of God and we trust that the glory of God is in the Word of God. And when the Word of God is brought forth, when it's unpacked, when it's exposed for what it is, that is the living, breathing Word of God, and then that with the Spirit of God transforming lives, amazing things can happen. It is transformational week by week. And preaching is not a small part of a preacher's ministry. One trend that I've seen the last few years that I'm pushing hard uh, back against is that, well, preaching is just such a minimum role of, of what a preacher really does. And I say, no, uh, historically in the church, great revivals have come through prayer and repentance and the preaching of the Word of God. So all of that, me qualifying that I believe in preaching, there are limitations in what can be done in the pulpit. We place great emphasis on ministry. We must place great emphasis on serving people, on caring for people, on shepherding the people of God. And there may be elements of pastoral ministry that pastors excel in, but every believer can play a role in the care of shepherding other believers. It does not fall on one person. It does not fall on a team of elders or pastors. It is the responsibility of all believers to care for and help shepherd other brothers and sisters in the faith. But I've had people buy into me as a minister that had nothing to do with what I did in the pulpit. Think of one lady years ago who her buy-in to me, 
I don't know that she ever heard me preach, but uh, I, I showed up at a hour of need when her son was suicidal. And I received a phone call and I was there in a few minutes of time sitting at a kitchen table talking to a son who is ready to end his life. Uh, I, she never did have any respect for me as a preacher because I don't know if she ever heard me preach. I don't think she cared about that. But the fact that I took the time out, that I dropped everything I was doing and went and ministered to her son, that meant something special to her. One guy who heard me preach a lot who never mentioned anything about my preaching. It wasn't the pulpit uh, ministry that affected him, but it's when he had a massive heart attack and I took the time to go to the town that he was in and sit by his bedside and just talk with him. We just talked about his, he had been a firefighter in earlier years and he loved to tell the stories about that and I sit and sat and listened to him and, and just that, nothing spiritual, just listening to him and visiting with him. But from that day, I was gold. I had numerous people that would tell me, man, he thinks the world of you. He never said a word to me about my preaching. It wasn't about that for him. It was the fact that somebody took the time to go and sit by his bedside. These, none of these things happen in the pulpit. They happened in the realities of everyday life. And it does take time to heal. It takes time to build relationships. It takes time to build a community of believers like what we're doing here. One of the, <clears throat> the, the things that when we try to develop a, a name for a church, uh, and early on I realized that through people I've talked to in lots of studies. I've read a lot of church planting and church growth studies. There are groups out there that they specialize in this. They, they study national trends. And one thing that, a lot of things surprised me about church growth and church planting, but one thing that really surprised me was that according to the studies, the name of the church had very little to do with how successful it was or how much it grew. And I look around and I see lots of names of churches today and I kind of scratch my head and think, well, I wouldn't go with that, but it didn't matter. I mean, they're, they're being successful with that. And the second part of that was, it said with a church plant, you can always change the name later. It's not that hard to do. But uh, one of the ideas was the idea of community. And I think when, when people who aren't part of a church see that, I think they immediately go to, well, that means it's, it's part of this community. It's part of this eastern Collin County area that we're trying to minister to but and yes that is a big part of it but the even bigger part that that plays is that it is a community of believers a community of what it means to actually live life together I'm reading a book right now by Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer <clears throat> is legendary in Christian circles because uh, he was he was executed in 19. 44 uh, by the Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German. His father, his family were very prominent in Germany. And uh, he was one of the dissenting voices in World War II that stood out and spoke against Hitler. And he was executed not long. If he could have just hung on a little longer in that concentration camp, uh, that regime would have would eventually fall shortly thereafter. But at 39 years of old, Bonhoeffer uh, was executed in 1944. And he's written several books, but one of them is a book called Life Together that I'm reading right now, and it is simply that. It is his uh, book, his writing, his ideas about how the church lives together as a 
community. What does it mean to be a community of believers, to do life together as believers? But it takes time to build that among believers. <clears throat> it is this kind of ministry that fosters an environment where people can heal. And referring back to now in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. It is this imagery of healing that the Spirit of God is here to heal us. But it takes time in a community of believers. Is there a, is there a ranking, is there a pecking order among shepherds in the church? Is there, is there a hierarchy among the shepherds in the church? <clears throat> the answer to that is yes, absolutely. And, and here is the hierarchy. Here is the order. It's in Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So writer of Hebrews says, Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Equip you with every good thing that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The rank of shepherds is this. Christ is the great shepherd. Everybody underneath that were under shepherds. And we've got to keep that in mind, that it is Christ Himself that is leading the church. He is the great shepherd. There is no such thing as ultimate senior leadership in a church. It doesn't exist other than the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the senior pastor of every church. This imagery of God as, as shepherd goes all the way back to Psalm 23. It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. It's just right there, the very beginning of it. One of, if not the most well-known chapter in the Bible starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And it starts off with, the Lord is my shepherd. We visit hospitals and we leave. I've made hospital calls where I felt guilty leaving that person in that bed. Like, I don't want that person to be alone. But the great shepherd is there in the room doing more than I could ever do, sitting by the bedside all night long. We counsel and advise for an hour. He gives wisdom every hour of the day. I, I did some counseling when I first moved here with a family and I walked out of there just so frustrated. And <clears throat> I only met with them once because it was such an unreal dysfunction. And I said, I have no interest meeting with you folks again until you change this and you change this. Because if you don't change, you're wasting your time and you're wasting mine. Like, you don't, you don't even need me to tell you what's going on here. Uh, because you, this isn't hard. Anybody could have walked in this situation in this room. Anybody could have walked in this situation. There were unbelievers that could have walked in that situation and said, this is what's wrong here and this is what's wrong there and you're both at fault. And if you don't change, and I told them, I said, unless you're willing to change these things, why would we meet anymore? What, what good would it come to do? 
Uh, and, and we didn't. That was the last time we ever met uh, because I was not interested in wasting anybody's time. But when I walked out of that room frustrated, what I had to remind myself is I'm frustrated and I'm walking out of that room and probably walking out of that situation because I'm not a professional counselor. It's not what my role is. Uh, but Christ was still in that situation. He was still going to work on them. His spirit was still going to try to do what it was doing in their lives. We counsel for an hour. He gives wisdom every single day. We warn against sin. It is only Christ that can save from sin. We preach the gospel. We witness. And we wonder, did it do anything? But He lingers in the hearts and the ears of the hearer. And He moves His word from their ears and their minds to their hearts in a ways that only God can do. It is only God that can do that. When we fall short, He picks up the slack. When I don't have the words to offer when tragedy strikes, one of the worst things that you can do when people are suffering. I mean, they've just had life and just slapped them upside the head in ways that they didn't see coming. The worst thing that that person can hear at that time is some pithy, trite saying, well, you know, the Lord works all things together for the good. They don't need to hear that. You don't have the words to fix or to help at that moment. What they need is, a, is an arm on their shoulder and a person to pray for them. But you don't have the words to fix it. And that's when in, in ministry, that's when it, it falls short. It's like I, I lack here what needs to be done. And it's true, I, I do lack it. But where I lack, His Spirit enters the room and speaks peace. And the mark of a good shepherd, the mark of a good under-shepherd, is that He always points, the under-shepherd always points to the great shepherd and declares Him to be Lord of all. The Lord is my shepherd. Real life happens here. People come here and will continue to come here broken and sick and dealing with every issue under the sun. It's because this is real life. And, and we try to be conscious that there are needs around us, real needs, not hangnails, but real situations, hurts, sicknesses, depressions, crises that just people need help. And we're going to minister to them. We're going to love them because there is healing power because we are the body of Christ. And God heals people through the power of congregation and the power of Christian community. We're the body of Christ. Paul used that imagery that the church is the body of Christ. And what the people 2,000 years ago when you talked about the body of Christ, what they knew most about the body of Christ is that it was battered and bloody and broken. That's what came to people's minds. When you talk about the body of Jesus, for a lot of people, the last thing they knew about Christ was that He was brutally crucified by the Romans. But in the midst of that violence that was afflicted on His body, there was victory over death and hell and the grave. So this morning, we're not a church because we have a lectern here with the Bible on it. We're not a church because it says we're a church. That's not what makes a church a church. We're not a church because we have a, a set time to gather. Uh, none of that makes us a church. There are places that have that every week that are not a church. It's only a church when God's power and God's presence, God's anointing rests inside that where God is declared Lord over people's lives and His Spirit is present to mediate that reality. We are a church because ordinary people, 
very ordinary people like us gather together in community and congregation in His name for His purpose. We just received uh, this week some official documents that uh, declare that this is, a, this is a legal entity as a church. This is recognized by the IRS as a legal entity uh, as a church. But that's not what makes this a church. It's not the government recognizing it's a church. That's not what makes a church a church. What makes this a church is God sees it and says, there's part of my body and that's my church. Without His anointing, none of, that else, none of the other things matter. He is a healer of the body. He heals us. There is bad theology out there today that says that God does not heal anymore. So there are, in Christianity, there's two kinds of people. There are cessationists and there are continuationists. And all that means is the cessationist is the people that say, we believe all the miracles in the Bible happened. We believe all the miracles in the New Testament happened. Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, Peter and John went to the temple in Acts 3 and they raised the guy up, the lame man, and all through there and he raised people from the dead and, and people were healed of blindness. We believe all that happened in the Bible, but at the end of the biblical text in Revelation, when that closed, all the miracles ceased and stopped. And there are whole denominations today that are built upon that. Uh, there are some people who I've read a lot of their works and, and they're brilliant in some aspects in some areas, but they just simply don't believe in divine healing. And then the other side of that is the, there are the, what we are, whether you, the term applies or not, but the term is a continuationist. We believe when the Bible ended that the miracles continued, that God still heals, He still performs miracles. The, the response that I would like to give to someone if I, if I had a chance to actually sit down and talk with a cessationist would be, explain to me the people that I know that God has healed. I, I know people who have experienced tremendous miracles of healing, documented, medically documented uh, miracles of healing. Uh, God does still heal. But what I don't want to do this morning is put healing on the same level as salvation. I must be saved. I don't have to be healed. Jesus said it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and go to hell. And what he's talking about here is that the temporal is not nearly as important as the eternal. The most important thing is that I must be saved. Um, I cringe at a song that says above all else I must be saved. It's wretched theology. Um, but it's not because of that line. It's other lines in the song, but if we could just stick with that one sentence and that one sentiment and say, above all else, yes, I must be saved. Above my healing, above my uh, struggles and trials in this life, I must be saved. So with that qualification, the fact is that God is still a healer. Matthew 4, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. The preaching of the gospel, now notice this, this is important to see in the New Testament. The preaching of the gospel and the healing of sickness in the time of Christ were tied together in the purpose of Jesus Christ. Often in scripture, the healing of the body and salvation happened in the same sequence at the same time. And with so many other things in Christianity, we've overcomplicated this. Like, 
fundamental basic Christianity in itself is, is not complicated. There's so much of this and that's why so many times people who know so much have a hard time getting a miracle in their life. And the person that is new to faith who really doesn't know all the ins and outs, they just have this faith. They're like, I believe God can do that and God does it and performs wonders. As a former pastor of mine once said, I've seen more sinners healed than I have saints. So I've seen, because sinners and we're all sinners in some context. He's talking about unchurched, unbelieving people, like people who are not part of a community of faith. He goes, I've seen more of those people receive their physical healing than I have people who are entrenched in a church because those people, somebody tells them something and they don't, they don't have these years of trying to work things out and figure th things out. And they just, they believe God. Somebody says God can do it and say, yeah, I believe that. And God does it. God heals them. But we've shied away from healing because of what we've seen with televangelists, the TV evangelists who blow on people and they fall over. Uh, the sensationalism of the miraculous has been made. Uh, and all of that, I mean, yes, we, we agree that so much of that is just absolute nonsense. Like if you really have that gift uh, to do that on demand, why aren't you roaming the halls of hospitals? Like that's my number one question. Uh, it's because that is sensationalism in that. But it is still, regardless of all the charlatans that want to play those role, it is still a fundamental Bible idea that God does heal. Genesis 20, Abraham prayed unto God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants and they bear children. Isaiah 53, the, what we saw in the Bible project was Chapters, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, this is called the suffering servant, which is a prophecy foretelling Jesus Christ. So Isaiah 40 through 55, this is that kind of that second part of Isaiah. And in, in these chapters is what we call the suffering servant. And this is part of this, Isaiah 53, this is the suffering servant. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. On and on and on, verses, I won't read all of them, but so many verses in the Bible. Psalm 107, He sent His Word and He healed them and delivered them from their destructions. In Acts 3, Peter and John going to the temple, God heals a lame man. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, the uh, Bible says that insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. That Peter walking down the street, his shadow cast from the sun would fall upon people and they would become healed. Uh, this, is, this is the Bible telling us that God does still heal. And I'm not preaching against doctors or medicine, but we can as modern Christians, modern Western Christianity become so reliant on things like this that we forget that God heals. 
James 5, is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he had committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, remember, notice I said earlier that in the Gospels, that healing and salvation were often tied together. But here in James, in the letters, salvation and healing, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's not a ritual. It's not a symbol. Something happens when we pray in the name of Jesus. In Luke 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. He fasts for 40 days, tempted by Satan. The Bible says he returns in the power of of the Spirit. And when Jesus returns, and this is where I want to close with to tie all this back to Isaiah 61. When Jesus returns and goes to Nazareth, He teaches in the synagogue. The synagogues were these places of worship for Jews. You don't find them in the Old Testament, but between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as as the dispersion of Jews went throughout the world, they began to create these synagogues. And the synagogue was basically anywhere that there were ten men. If you could gather ten men together for the purpose of worship, then you could make a synagogue. And they were typically built in an elevated place on a hill, uh, and they were, they were the regular customary places of worship for Jews at that time. And in these synagogues, what they would do is they would read the law, they would read the Old Testament. They would divide it into portions that, so that the law, the Old Testament, was read throughout the entire year. And then they would offer prayers and then they would expound upon Scripture. It sounds familiar. This is what we do today in church. This is how the Jews did it in the synagogue. And it was divided so that the five books of Moses and portions of the prophets could be read throughout the entire year. They had a schedule that they would go on. And then after someone would read it, they would give a sermon on the Old Testament text. And this was done either by officers of the synagogue or by any person who might be invited in to be the officiating minister on that Sabbath. And our Lord and the apostles made it customary. It was a habit of attending those places constantly and speaking to the people. And they were invited in. So as New Testament believers, they were at times invited in to speak in these places. So here's where I want to tie this back to Isaiah 61. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus came to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So Jesus stands up in synagogue and he reads what I just read to you from Isaiah 61. Jesus does the exact same thing. He stands there and reads Isaiah 61. And he reads the first few verses. And after he's done, he does something that is revolutionary. That is, these kinds of things are what gets him crucified. He closes the book when he reads it. He closes the book like this. He turns, and of course it wouldn't have been a book like this. It would have been on a scroll. He turns and he hands it to the minister. And he goes and sits down. He, doesn't, he hasn't expounded on it. And the Bible says in Luke that all the eyes of those people in the synagogue turned and looked at him. Like, what are you going to do with this, Jesus? 
And he began to say to them, This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. In other words, I am the one that that verse is talking about. That was a radical, radical claim to say, Isaiah 61 I just read, yeah, it's talking about me. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the prophesied one. It's me. This day, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. In other words, what he was saying is the healer is in the house. I'm the one. I'm, I'm here right in living flesh. I am here. And the reaction that they had was that they threw Jesus out of town. The Bible says they were going to throw him off a cliff, except he escaped. And of course he escaped. His time had not yet come. As many evangelists and missionaries especially have said, I am immortal until the Lord is finished with me. I believe that with all my heart. I believe I am immortal. Nothing can touch me in this life until God is finished. People who are taken, we say they're taken early. They were not taken outside of the will of God. God was finished with that plan in their life. We don't understand it, but God knows. I am immortal until He is finished with me. Jesus, His time was not come. He, was a, he had an appointed way to die, and it wasn't being thrown off a cliff by an angry mob. But they were going to throw him off a cliff simply because he said that one phrase, Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your ears. You're looking at the fulfillment of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Your response to understanding that he is the healer is what will determine your blessing. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that reality that we could say today that what we read about in Isaiah 61 is fulfilled here today, that Christ is here, that the one who binds up the brokenhearted, who heals the sick, who brings deliverance to the captive, that one is here in this place today. He is our healer, but not just a physical. He is our, the healer of our mind and our body and our spirit. That's why victims of abuse God can heal hearts and minds and spirits where fear is gripping the lives of so many people, especially today in our culture, fear is gripping the lives of people. The Bible says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. The spirit of bitterness that people don't think they can change. God can take people back from bitterness to a place of tenderness. The spirit of depression that attacks so many good spirit-filled people God can remove that and take that away. The bruises and pains from the past, there is forgiveness and release in the Spirit of God. For we are the, the temple of the Spirit of God. He dwells inside of us. And from us, from this temple, can issue the healing power of the Spirit. John chapter 7, the day of the great feast, Jesus stands up and declares that out of your belly, shall flow rivers of living water. Remember in John, water is always equated with the Spirit of God. It's, it's symbolic there of God's Spirit. Jesus is saying, out of you can come rivers of my Spirit. It is a reality that the devil, the enemy, and or our conscience can have us believe that we have to live our lives in the state of mind that we have until we die. But the Word of God says you don't have to live with those things, that He is a healer, that you can overcome those things this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit that is even here now ministering to us. I pray, Lord, that 
as I've spoken these realities that it would become an even greater reality in the lives of everyone that's here this morning that you would heal our hearts and our minds and for those who are struggling with whatever it is I, I don't need to know I don't need anyone to confess anything to me just that we would confess to you Lord our sins and our faults and our failures that we would ask you for strength and healing for those things bring healing in this place today Lord you are here in a reality through the power of your spirit that is just as great as if you were standing in this room today in flesh and while Lord you stood in the synagogue that day and said today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears the crowd was angry at you they wanted to kill you but today our response is very different we come before you and our response is to submit to that reality to submit to that beautiful truth and to say that you are the suffering servant that was crucified and died and was raised again and now you are suffering no longer but you sit on the throne for all of eternity you sit in the place where you justly and rightly deserve and that is as the God of this universe and as the Lord over our lives so this morning Lord we submit ourselves to you Lord, we submit our time our finances our visions our dreams our ambitions in this life all of that is submitted to you today Lord so that in turn we submit those things to you in an act of worship Lord that is our act of worship that we submit ourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable unto you and Lord we will continue to worship you this week Lord through our time and our lives and our efforts Lord and we will give you all the praise and glory and honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.